Welcome to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-out. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Hello everyone and welcome to the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. Today we return to the topic of China in Africa. Our guest is Dr. Yu Jia, the Director of International Development Cooperation at the Institute of New Structural Economics at Peking University. Dr. Yu has over eight years of experience of working on overseas energy and mining investments. Currently, she manages application of new structural economics to the international investment practice. Dr. Yu, it is great to have you on the show. Very happy to be here. Please introduce yourself and your background. My name is Yu Jia. I will be working at the Beijing University's New Structural Economics Institute in 2017, and I'm responsible for the work of the international think tank team. I'll introduce more later. Before this position, I worked in a Chinese enterprise in China for more than eight years. And as you mentioned in the introduction, this enterprise is a part of a group of companies in the energy field. Then I was mainly responsible for overseas investment in energy and mining. Prior to that, I was in an American consulting firm, Essentia, where I was consulting with the energy and utilities industry. And so that's my work background. So you worked on multiple energy mining development projects. What were the most memorable and interesting ones? How have your experience of working with internationalizing Chinese companies shaped your view on development? I have been working in Africa for more than a decade, including my previous job in business and my current team at Peking University. In fact, these projects or some practices have a gradual impact on my current understanding of Africa. To put it simply, when I was working in a former enterprise, I was mainly engaged in energy and mining, so I was a Chinese investor who went to Africa. But now at Beijing University, in my current role, we are more of an advisor to African governments to help them figure out how to develop their economies. And at the same time, we will work with Chinese investors in these manufacturing industries. I'm involved in industries spanning from energy, mining, and more recently manufacturing. So from the role of a Chinese investor who wants to sit on one side of a negotiating table to an advisor of the governments on the other side of the table. Then my role morphed into one of coordinating how the government could better enact some good policies to attract Chinese investors to invest in the country. So over a period of a decade, I have played quite a number of roles and all represented a big change for me in my approach and my thinking. And if you could give us a couple of example projects that you worked on. Of course, infrastructure is very important to all developing countries, not just African countries. So I would like to stress one point here. Infrastructure, it's not just hard physical infrastructure. It's not just roads, hotels, and then the hard ones in the park, but also soft infrastructure. 
We can see in many developing countries, for example, if I jump out of Africa and give an example regarding Pakistan, which I visited last May. On the way to Pakistan from Lahore to Islamabad, I didn't have a choice of plane at that time. I just took a bus and walked over on the highway. And I was surprised that the roads were in excellent condition. And the trip was quick as there was no traffic jam. Why? <laughs> the road is wide and large, but there were no cars running on the road. So on the one hand, you may be happy as a traveler because you will reach your destination quickly. But on the other hand, as an ordinary person working in the field of development, I would be worried that the government has borrowed too much money to build roads that nobody uses. So with large infrastructure projects in particular, we need to be careful to plot the future demand, usage and benefit. Not just build infrastructure for infrastructure's sake. In Africa, for example, the Yaji Railway is quite famous as the surrounding economy is developing very fast and it has no access to the sea. So it and neighboring Djibouti are one of its ports of entry. So anyone can imagine the railway from Addis Ababa to Djibouti requires a great capacity to transport goods and people. I'm not up to speed on the latest developments, but I knew that when the railway was just starting to operate, its transport capacity was quite insufficient to meet the demand. So my point is that more consideration should be on how to maximize the impact of the infrastructure that has already been built. This is what I mean when I talk about hard infrastructure aspects. The other thing is the soft aspects, because we have been to build infrastructure in many other countries, but there is not enough time and effort spent on educating them on how to get the best use of it. We found that African governments are often very proactive and want to attract investment. They also know how to play well to the idea of one-stop shopping, having one large investor provide everything required. They also knew how to meet the needs of investors and give them preferential developing rights and policies. But once the infrastructure is built, finding the corresponding talent with the necessary management experience, including their local people's limited education level, proves difficult. Soft infrastructure also needs to be upgraded simultaneously as hard infrastructure is built out, including the education system. It includes equality between men and women, including training, etc. All this needs to be considered at the same time the hard infrastructure is being planned and built. You work very closely in Africa with uh, projects in countries such as Benin and Ethiopia, right? Mm -hmm. So how is the Belt and Road and wider Chinese finance and construction impacting the actual development in those countries? And can you give us two or three examples of completed initiatives, completed mm -hmm. projects, and what impact did they have on the mm -hmm. local situation? This is a very good question. Every day we're dealing with these issues. Uh, first of all, from the perspective of a Chinese investor. We are still very worried about those uncontrollable risks. For example, their national risks, political risks, etc. And while these cannot be controlled, there are some ways to mitigate them. For example, you can buy insurance from the World Bank. You can also buy insurance to avoid the political risks at the national level, including the macro level of the non-convertible currency. There is another kind of policy risk, which is actually getting more and more serious at present. For example, in many developing countries, their governments may change every four or five years. The terms promised in the previous administration may be about the duration of the general project. Particular projects such as energy and mining take at least 10 years, or even 20 or 30 years. However, sometimes when a new administration comes into power, they may try to renegotiate the terms. They all say they are very concerned about the sustainability of the policy and use that as an excuse to renegotiate. Now, as a member of the team at Peking University, the advice we give to African governments again and again is that no matter how many changes government goes through, 
your policy should maintain some level of continuity. That includes the terms you promised in the original agreement and that everyone has to abide by them in a very professional manner. For example, when I was in the power industry before, for power investors, this PPA is a very important business clause in the power purchase and sale contract. Let me give you a real case at that time. The country promised the price of 14 cents, which was very high, very attractive. Uh, there were Chinese investors, as well as investors from other countries, who all bid competitively for the project. Eventually, the Chinese investor won, and later told the government it would accept a lower price guarantee of just 10 cents. However, after the power generation actually started, the electricity price dropped to 4 cents. And then the government, due to its insufficient fiscal revenue and poor management of prices, still owed the investor for the difference. So situations like these are actually the biggest concern for investors. The ability of these countries to fulfill the terms of their commitments and to ensure the continuity of their policies is unclear and unreliable. Another type of risk can be classified as kind of cultural and communication. When I was working in the enterprise before that, we went to the African country I mentioned before to do a project. At that time, we made a detailed risk of all the risks and graded, including people, political risks, environmental risks, and so on. In this way, the staff at all levels of the project, including the top leaders, as well as the middle level, and the staff below were graded for risk. At the end of the process, we were surprised to find the risk of cultural and language miscommunication to be the largest risk of all. At that time, we weren't even really thinking of those things as a business risk. But after working in this country for 35 years, slowly, gradually, it be became clear that it was a real risk. Let me give another very personal example. Because I've been working in Africa for many years, I have many good local friends in Africa. One day I was talking to a very good local friend of mine. She was a woman and a local minister. She wanted to ask me a question, but I could feel her hesitation. Then I encouraged her to say what was on her mind. She said, I've been meaning to ask you, but I can't. I said, it's all right, just say it. She said, can you tell me, is it true? The labor force that came to Africa from China, are you Chinese workers prisoners in your country? <laughs> I was shocked to hear that, firstly because it wasn't even remotely true, but I was more curious about why she thought that. Then she told me, you see, I've been watching for a long time the Chinese workers on the construction site. Well, first of all, the construction site is completely surrounded by a very high wall, and the construction workers, they never go out. They never communicate with outsiders, never talk or mingle with those of us outside the wall. And of course, they all wear the same labor uniform, whatever you call that clothing. I can only assume that they are prisoners, as that's how prisoners dress, act and behave in our country. This conversation really got me thinking, especially since I was the one who was in charge of government relations, local public relations, business and so on. So out of this experience and others, we decided to train our expatriate staff better, as well as our local staff. For example, we should teach the locals some Chinese, and at the same time, we should also train ourselves. Of course, we didn't just teach them languages, not just French, which was their local dialect, but more cultural things, like, for example, wedding traditions in African countries. We also began to encourage our Chinese employees to go out and go to the local staff weddings, or visit those who would give birth to a baby, to basically be present when they celebrate the normal things in their lives. This change brought results very fast, and in just a month or two, our Chinese employees could even sing local songs and dance on the construction site. And then we would put all the employees together every month for a gathering, for example, a birthday celebration party for all native and expatriate staff who had birthdays in a particular month. After a while, of their own initiative, to create several other platforms for communication, they were spontaneously created. All of these things greatly increased mutual understanding. 
Another one was religion, because many Africans are Muslim. They want to pray every day, several times a day, in fact. We also have Chinese Muslim employees. So the Muslims from both the Chinese and local community began praying together. This was especially powerful and brought a sense of unity. With this kind of harmony working, work also proceeded more smoothly. So communication and cultural exchanges we found are extremely important. They are also a source of challenge for the investor organization. Finally, there's also the market risk, much of which I experienced as part of the Beijing University team in our support for the manufacturing industry. Many manufacturers are enticed to invest due to market size and expected demand. But once several companies have come in and invested, the manufacturing companies need to vigorously compete for their share of the consumer's spending power. So we've begun to advise manufacturing companies to focus on the regional opportunity instead of that of one country. Another important aspect is Africa, for example, it and the United States have a zero tariff agreement. Africa has also similar agreements with the European market. So when your products go to Africa to produce, they become products made in Africa. So they are exported from Africa to the United States, to Europe and other international markets. These zero tariff agreements reduce the cost significantly. Therefore, for Chinese manufacturing enterprises, they should not focus on specific countries, but should be global in scope. So what would you say are the three biggest challenges faced mm. by Chinese companies internationalizing mm. in Africa mm. in general, judging from your experience, also, yeah. also the past one? I can give you two examples. One is a Chinese investor and one for my present role as advisor to African governments. As an investor, the first time I came to Africa was early in 2009 when our company was in a country in West Africa with a company involved in mining and various other activities. We had the mining sector together with the supporting energy supply and the industrial park's own projects under our charter. There were also some ports and large container infrastructure facilities that we were involved with. When I first set foot in Africa in January 2009, my impression at the time was really different from what I imagined. After getting off the plane, I immediately found what real poverty is actually like. The airport had a terminal that was simply a thatched shed. And once you got your luggage and walked out of the airport, all of a sudden, there were a lot of black hands poking through the railings, all asking for money. I really couldn't reconcile the stark difference. Because I was a graduate student and doctor in France, I had many African classmates, African friends, all from France and Africa. So I found out that having friends overseas is quite different from the experience of actually going to Africa. But after a few years of work there, notwithstanding the fact the country being a very poor, small country, the government was very proactive and helpful. Now the airport I originally arrived in has its own terminal, and it's managed very well. And that was only three years later after my arrival. My first night in the hotel was very different to the situation today. At that time the hotel was expensive, and then you lifted up the mattress in the hotel and there were cockroaches everywhere. For your clothes you only had one bar on the wall to hang them. But now all the big international hotels such as Sheraton and Hilton have invested in that country and built beautiful new hotels. So from this kind of somewhat superficial phenomena, you can see that once a country has good investment direction and the government is proactive, then positive change can come very quickly. Then our project was focused on mining a site to create product for export to improve on the heretofore simple mining projects. The government was very encouraging at that time because of the large number of jobs and labor transfers. Therefore, in the negotiation of the agreement, we were given very favorable conditions and it was clear that the other side was eager to develop the country. However, since the overall scale of the project was still larger than the amount of our investment, 
And because it was in the mining and energy sectors, we encountered many difficulties in advancing such a large project. For both the governments of the African country as well as China itself, we faced difficulties in justifying such a massive project in such an infrastructure-poor region. For a power generation company to also invest in large mines to make the project successful really made us seriously consider whether the justification to also invest in non-core business activities such as mining were indeed in the best interest of the company. That led us to seek out investment partners from the mining industry and as a result slowed down the progress of the project considerably. Now let me give you a more recent example. As a member of the international team at Peking University and then as a government consultant, we deal more often these days with the manufacturing industry. Over the last two years, we have grown more aware that for developing countries, the top priorities are actually two things, employment and exports. The manufacturing industry is an industry that can bring a lot of employment opportunities, according to statistics from the China's Bureau of Statistics. For example, there are 85 million direct jobs in China's labor-intensive industries. And as the labor costs of China, mainly the wages of workers, has increased very fast, so the Chinese investors in these industries need to find lower-cost places to manufacture goods. Of course, the total cost includes all aspects from the logistic costs of moving manufacturing bases. So Africa is actually a good choice. Because China has 1.4 billion people, and Africa contains 50% of the world's working age population, so it is a very big trend for manufacturing to move to Africa in the future. Now as I deal more with manufacturing, and we find that compared with traditional energy and mining, in fact manufacturing, no matter which government of African countries comes to power, is the quickest way to solve employment problems. Through manufacturing, they can increase exports to create foreign exchange and have more income to buy other products, and African countries can create fiscal surpluses. Therefore, as we see it, the focus and priority of African countries these days is to attract investment in manufacturing. Please help us understand a typical Chinese project in Africa. What are the stages through which such a project has to go through and what kind of actors are typically involved in it? There are lots of examples of Chinese companies investing in Africa. But because each industry is so different, energy has the characteristics of energy and mining has the characteristics of mining, and of course manufacturing has the characteristics of manufacturing, it's really hard to generalize. Let me say that right now with the current team at Peking University, one model we are hoping to encourage or vigorously promote is the manufacturing plus model. Why plus? Um, because as I explained just now, for most African countries, employment and exports are the most important concerns, and manufacturing can bring a lot of jobs. But if you just develop manufacturing alone, you will find that although many young people are unemployed and looking forward to working their skills, their education level is not high enough, so there's a big gap in your human capital. Also, in order to develop manufacturing, you need electricity, you need energy. But some of these developing countries have no electricity, making it all very difficult. So that is why we advocate manufacturing plus, to add the energy, mining, or even some other logistics or some innovation in the new economy. For example, this year is exactly 40 years since China's reform and opening up. We are also sorting out our own successful experiences. From the past 40 years in China, we notice we have a unique characteristic. That is China's special economic zones, our industrial parks. In 1979, the first industrial park in China was built in Shoko, where our GDP was lower than that of one-third of the countries in Africa south of the Sahara today. So you can imagine what China was like 40 years ago. As Deng Xiaoping said, we should cross the river by touching each of the stones with our feet. 
So the special economic zones were our experimental fields, our stones in the river. So like the Chaco Industrial Park, it started with only 2.14 square kilometers. Very small indeed, given the scale of the entire country. The idea was that while the entire country was not ready to accept outside investment, we can make these two square kilometers work. And by giving the investing enterprises special treatment, for example, a certain period of tax exemption and rent-free factories, etc., companies can be attracted enough to invest. The idea was to allow some enterprises that were willing to invest in China first enter and then guarantee their success, because they will tell the outside world if they succeed. In particular, it will give a good signal to a large number of potential investors who are on the sidelines that investment in China can be successful now. That leads to the market thinking, if I don't go, I may be late and I may not have a chance. So this is also a great success feature of China. Well, now African countries are in fact similar to and in some aspects even better than China was in those years. So we also think that the special economic zone is a very good investment. So we're building industry parks, and in these parks, we promote this manufacturing industry plus mode of planning, operation and investment. Now, many African countries in the industrial park have access to mineral products, but if you simply export them, you don't create many jobs. You don't create any high-value-added products. And in addition, since mineral products are commodity products, which are very affected by the price fluctuations in this international market, this makes returns risky. Once prices have fallen, the country's export earnings have shrunk substantially, so the risk is high. But if you dig out the minerals, and then turn some of that output to generate electricity, and the local electricity can provide energy, so it first satisfies the power supply in the industrial parks, which is one to two square kilometers in size. After that, the manufacturing industry can come in, and when they come in and employ a large number of workers to produce products, they have international orders to export to the United States, export to Europe, so this is a good model. Therefore, I think that when we go to Africa, we should consider the whole matter, and each country should develop its own industries according to its own characteristics. And that wraps it up for today. Dr. Yu, thank you for sharing your unique experience with us. It has been a true pleasure to have you on the show. Yes, thank you. It was my pleasure. Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, B E N T U R E S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.